Good morning, Boker Tov. Wonderful to see everybody again. Just a reminder before we begin studying the Parsha that on January 30th we have the privilege of hosting Rav Asher Weiss Shlita and we have a community-wide celebration of our base Medrash program and all the classes it offers. You have flyers on your table and we invite you to participate in enabling our community to continue to learn. So please uh, consider joining one of the levels to be part of this amazing evening. We hope you'll attend either way, but we certainly invite you to, uh, to participate in providing this total learning to our community. This week we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vaira. And of course we continue the story, the narrative that began last week. Last week was the recruiting mission. The Almighty recruits Moshe to be the leader. He becomes the paradigmatic, the quintessential leader. Moshe is not only a leader of his time, but Moshe emerges to be a leader that is without comparison. One of the 13 principles of our faith, the Rambam enumerates, is the prohibition to, to uh, suggest that anyone else could achieve or reach the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's categorically different. He is unique. He is unusual as a leader. We spoke about in Shul last Shabbos morning that the Torah never tells us why. All we know is that Moshe will take up Every parsha from here till the end of the Torah, except the Tzavah, his name is not mentioned, but Moshe is the, he's the main character of the entire rest of Chumash. He's the transformational leader who becomes, creates the catalyst for our redemption. And yet, and yet, we know so little about him. In the first 80 years of his life, we know four stories. Four stories from the Torah, and one more story that the Medrash fills in. I'm not going to repeat the entire drasha, but to say... That Rav Simcha Zissel Ziv, the author of Kelmzatzal, says, if you want to understand, why was Moshe chosen? Was he so brilliant, so good-looking, so charismatic, such an orator? Why was Moshe chosen? And not chosen for that time or for that generation. Chosen in perpetuity to forever be Rabbeinu. Moshe, his last name was not Rabbeinu. But we call him Moshe Rabbeinu, as if it always goes together, forever. Avram Avinu, Yosef Hatzadik, David Hamelech, and Moshe Rabbeinu. He is our teacher forever. And what do we learn from him? That he's Avanavim? Was he chosen because he was the greatest prophet? The most spiritual? So the author of Kelm says, if you want to know why he was chosen, look at the common denominator, the common theme of the four stories the Torah tells us before he turns 80. The only four stories. We don't know what he got on the SATs or what his GPA was. We don't know that he knew Shas when he was four years old. We don't know some hagiographical hey, stories. We know four things about him. And again, I don't want to take the time to review them, but the common theme of all four is Moshe excels at being nosei ba'olim chaveiro, carrying the burden with his friend. He leaves the comfort, the security, the protection of the palace to see what's going on outside. An Egyptian is striking a Jew, he intercedes. Two Jews are fighting, he can't help but get involved. He runs to Midian, complete strangers. These girls are being harassed at the well. Just, just go on with your life. It's caused enough problems by always having to get involved. He can't help it but to get involved. And the Medrash fills in the fifth story where Moshe sees one of his lambs is uh, tired, puts the animal on his shoulder, carries it back to the flock. And so God says to Moshe, it's not your brilliance, your good looks, your charisma, your speaking skills. You are the leader in perpetuity. You are Rabbeinu. The lessons we continue to learn every day is to be no se ba'olam chaveros, to care about the people around us. So last week's Pasha, Moshe is recruited to be the leader 
of the Jewish people and he hesitates and demurs and God convinces him and they have the whole exchange and so on and so forth. Brings us to our parsha, Vaira. And God begins by promising Moshe Vaira Avraham al Yitzchak al Yaakov you are impressed? You have a tradition? You've heard the stories of how I revealed myself to your ancestors? Says God, that's nothing compared to what I'm about to do. You ain't seen nothing yet. If you're impressed by the stories you heard about my revelation to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the traditions you have from them, oh, wait till you see what's about to come. And what is about to come? God promises Moshe what we now know or we now call the Dalad Lashonos of Geula, the four languages of redemption. What are those four languages of redemption that we know if you come to the, for the men's afternoon kolo sponsored by the Frolofs on Wednesday afternoons at 3 p.m., where we are learning Mesechus Psachim, Arve Psachim. You remember last year, early in the parak, we talked to Rash Bam there, quoted, Tosos gave another reason, but the whole origin of Dalad Kosos. Why do we drink four cups of wine? Why do we drink four cups of wine? At least one tradition is they correspond with the four languages of redemption, the beginning of our Parsha. And what are those four languages of redemption? Number one, the Otsesi. God says, I'm going to take you out from under the burdens. First of all, we see that word repeating over and over. Sivlos. Vayar besivlosam. Moshe left the palace to see their Sivlosam. God says, I'm going to take you out from underneath Sivlos Mitzrayim. What is that word, Sivlos? Well, I'll pose it to you as a question, which you can think about. I'm not going to answer. But what's the connection between that word, Sivlos? Moshe left the palace to go see their Sivlos. God says, it's enough. You've suffered enough. I'm ready to take you out from the Sivlos. What's the connection between that word, Sivlos, and Savlanut? A little Savlanut. When you came into the parking lot this morning, you had a little savlanut. So what's the connection between savlanut and sivlos? Sivlosam, sivlos mitzray. That's a rhetorical question. You can consider and think about it on your own. So the first lashon of Gula, the first language, the first cup at the Pesach Seder, the first cup of wine, the last cup where you're completely sober, is v'hotzesi, that God says, I will take you out, mitacha sivlos mitzrayim. I'm going to rescue you. You've been suffering. You're crumbling under the burden, under the ruthless, relentless taskmasters. I'm going to redeem you. Second is, I'm going to rescue you from Egypt. Not just will I end the work, not just will I end the slavery and subjugation, but I'm going to rescue you. And then I'm going to redeem you. What's the difference between being redeemed and being rescued and being taken out? So first, taken out means I'm going to end the work. And then, Vitsalti, I'm going to rescue from Egypt, beyond just the immediate work, but rescue from the bondage. And then, Vigaalti, I'm going to redeem you, means I'm going to give you your own identity. It will not be intertwined or subjugated by the Egyptians. And then lastly, the fourth language, the fourth cup, for those who are still awake by then, and when it's all done, I will take you to me as a people, and I will be your God. This fourth language of Geula, the Mepharshim here all point out, although we're just doing the overview, we're not yet looking into the Pesukim, but the Mepharshim explain this was the essential purpose for which we were redeemed. You have to understand, Pesach is nothing without Shavuos. 
If you observe Pesach and neglect Shavuos, you've not observed Pesach. Pesach was not about our story of... It's not our national liberation story. We were emancipated. We became a free, secular, political entity. We gained independent identity and status. That's not what Pesach is about. There have been people in bondage throughout history. There are people suffering today in the world. And God does not suspend the rules of nature or transcend the natural order to create miracles and wonders in order to free them. And yet He did it for us. And why did He do it for us? Not just so that we could emerge some secular political entity. The whole purpose was Vilakachti. Vilakachti takes place where? God takes us. Where does He take us? At Harsinai. The culmination, the climax, the goal is reached at Harsinai. When Vilakachti, when we enter this covenant, when we become a different people, a sacred covenantal community, that's when we achieve the fourth language of Geula, Vilakachti. Understand that receiving the Torah is part and parcel. It is a part of redemption and the redemption process. It's not that we were redeemed, we were free, we were in the desert, and now we got a Torah. Receiving the Torah was part of redemption. It redeemed us. What do we say at the Pesach Seder? That if God had not taken us out, then we would still be in Egypt. To which the commentators on the Haggadah all ask, what do you mean? The world works in cycles, political cycles and... And, and disobedience and, and revolutions and rebellions and revolts, what are the chances thousands of years later we'd still be in Egypt? Of course we wouldn't. But it doesn't mean physically. It means our entire mindset, our perspective, our religion, our philosophy, our attitude would have all been still the pagan Egyptian attitude. Giving us the Torah, when it says that the words were that they were engraved on the luchos, the Mishnah in Pirkei Eva says, don't read it engraved. Charas. Elacheras. Read it that Torah gives us freedom. Torah truly liberates us from the mores and the, and the attitudes and the culture of the time. Everyone else thinks they're free and that Torah makes us have this restrictive life. Whereas we are the only ones who are in fact free because we have Torah. I'll give you one small example and then I want to go on. But one small example. Who's free and who is restricted and constricted? The one who keeps Shabbos or the one who doesn't? So at first glance you'd say, well, if, you have to, if you're bound by Shabbos, 39 categories of creative labor, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the other thing. So you're enslaved by the rules of Shabbos. But if I can go to the beach and I can go to the mall and I can go to the game and I can go to the gym and I can go... On, on, on my phone and on my computer, I'm free and you are enslaved. But I would humbly suggest to you that it's exactly the opposite. Do you know anyone in the world today, and this is only going to get worse and worse, I think the Shabbos observant Jewish people will be studied in universities across the world. Because as technology becomes more ubiquitous and more addictive, we will be the last vestige of humanity. Us and the Amish. <laughs> some, some of us dress like the Amish we look alike too but we and the Amish will be the last vestiges of humanity who are capable of disconnecting from the world for 25 hours maybe someone can go without their phone for an hour for half a day but then they'll start to get the jitters and the breakout in hives and the spike of fever and the blood pressure And we are the last 
vestiges of humanity who for 25 hours can disconnect from the world around us. So again, I ask you, who's free and who's enslaved? Who's really free? Is it not the one who can say, I determine my condition, I determine my lifestyle, I determine my life? Who's free? The one who can't give up the non-kosher food? Or the one who says, I have the discipline, the self-control, I can regulate my life. I'm free. I can make the choice what to eat and what not to eat. So, Torah, in fact, is what frees us. And that was the fourth and final stage. And that's why, if you don't observe Shavuos, you haven't really kept Pesach. Because Pesach is not about physical freedom and emancipation. Pesach is about getting out from under the bondage of Egypt, not only getting the Jews out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of the Jews, and replacing the Egypt that was in the Jews with Torah in the Jews, with being Tamim with Hashem, with Emunah, which really the whole story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is about planting the seeds of Emunah, for us to look back in perpetuity and forever point to those seminal events and say, how do I know there's a God? And how do I know God cares about me? Because my great-great-grandparents saw it all happen and they passed it on until my parents told it to me and I tell it to my children. And that's why we've shared this before. That the Kuzari, Rabbi Yudah Levi, describes why does God introduce himself at Aseris Adibros, Anochi Hashem Mitzrayim. He should introduce himself, I am the Lord your God and I did the most impressive thing that's ever been done. I created ex nihilo, something from nothing. You all create, you gotta go to Lowe's or Home Depot. When you create, you're working with the materials I gave you. But I'm God. I'm the only being that has ever created something from nothing. But God does not introduce himself that way. Instead, he says, Nice to meet you. I'm the Lord your God. Here's the second most impressive thing I ever did. I took you out of Egypt. Why does he forfeit the most impressive thing to go to the second most impressive thing? Did he not attend a workshop on how to build your resume? So why does God skip to, I took you out of Egypt? So the Kuzari says, because we weren't around when he created. We weren't around. No one saw it. Our ancestors can't tell us they witnessed it. A. And B, he might have created and moved on. How do you know that he created a world and then maintained an intimate personal relationship with each of us after? So you know how you know B? Because my parents told me they heard from their parents who heard from their parents who heard from their parents who were there. Eyewitness testimony. It's coming down through the family chain. And just like I don't doubt the veracity of what my parents tell me are the stories of my great-grandparents, I don't doubt the veracity because if it came person to person to me from eyewitnesses, I believe it's part of my own family narrative. Well, Yitzhiya Smitzrayim is part of my family narrative. And it becomes the precedent that we point to forever to remember and say, God didn't just create a world and move on. But He maintains a personal relationship with every one of us. So Shavuos and Pesach are bookends. If you don't observe Velakachti, the fourth of the Lashonos of Geula, then you've neglected the other three. Because the whole purpose, the whole matara, the whole goal of the first three languages of Geula is to achieve the fourth and final, the Velakachti, to arrive. The Ramban says that Pesach and Shavuos represent the first and last days of one Yantif. Ramban writes this in Pasha Zemur. That Pesach is the first days, Sfira Saomer is Cholamoid, and Shavuos are the second days, all of one Yantif. And that's why, what does Shavuos call them in the Torah? Atzeres. And what's the last day of Sukkot called? Atzeres. Shmini Atzeres. 
Because Yantifs have a first days and a last days. Sukkot, the last days, Shemini Atzeres. Pesach, the last days are Shavuos. That's a really long Yantif <laughs> with a 49-day Cholamoid in between. It's really long, but it's all part of one Yantif. Why? Because Velakachti. Because if you don't arrive at the Velakachti, then you've neglected the Vahotsesi, Hitzalti, and Vegaalti. So that's all the beginning of our Parsha. God tells Moshe that... God tells Moshe, you think you're impressed with what you heard from your ancestors? That's nothing. Wait till you see what you're about to see. I'm about to blow you out of the world. These four forms of redemption. Now, is there a fifth? What's the fifth? Pasaches. We are living in the miraculous time. We are living through the fifth language of Geula. It's unbelievable. I get, I get goosebumps. What is the ultimate, ultimate culmination? Right? The goal was not to get you out of Egypt. There are people suffering under bondage all over the world. God does not intercede, transcend, or suspend nature. What was the goal here? To give you the Torah. And for the Torah to replace the Egyptian mindset. And then once you have, once you're a Jew, you've gone through the Korah Barzal, you've gone through the fiery furnace of Egypt. And just like metal is hardened, you have become, God has fashioned that clay into the utensil called a Jew. I've made you a people, a nation, Jews, with Torah, now where do you take that Torah? What's the third? Am Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael. God says, if my vision is for you to be a microcosm of the world, you are, your mission as a people is to show the world what I originally intended for them. I want you to teach the world what it means to relate to time and to people and to the physical pleasures and to food. Because the world is confused and suffering and struggling and tripping over it. So I want you, the Jewish people, to be those role models. So how can you be the ultimate role models? When will the spotlight shine the greatest on us? When will the stage be the biggest for the world to learn and to watch? We're seeing it today unfold. When you have a Jewish people in our Jewish homeland, guided by Jewish values, is when the world will either learn the most or learn the most against. But we shouldn't be so shocked and we shouldn't be so upset that the world shines a spotlight on us because that's the way God designed it. A Jewish people in our homeland tasked challenged, charged to live a sacred life and for that to filter out for the world to see and to be envious of and to learn from and to emulate. And when we blow it, then the world points a finger and holds us accountable under a magnifying glass more than anyone else. Well, that's because God gave us a stage and a spotlight. And when we achieve it, then hopefully the world learns from it. They may not give us credit, but they're using all our technology and medical advices and we win a few Nobel Prizes here and there. So we do get some credit. So the fifth language of Geula is the Vehevesi. So now I want to share with you something unbelievable. This is supposed to be in the overview portion. But I want to share with you something incredible because it will give you the goosebumps. Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher. I don't know how many of you heard of Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher. The magnum opus he wrote was called the Torah Shlema. Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher was, uh, was born in, I think, 1895. He died in 1983. He was born in Warsaw. He was a Talmud of the Sochet Rebbe. And he was a great scholar. He held very few public positions in life. When the Gera Rebbe sent him to Israel to open a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, 
He was a Rosh Hashiva for literally a few years. And that was the only position. He wasn't a Rav or a Rosh Hashiva, but he was an outstanding Talmud Chacham and a scholar. And he made tremendous literary contributions to Torah scholarship, for which he won the Israel Prize for his Torah Shlema. So Torah Shlema is an amazing, amazing, many-volume work. It only went up to Parshas, I think, B'Shalach by the time he died. And his children published more volumes after his death, posthumously. And Torah Shlema, each volume is, is thick. Each volume is a, like a phone book. And it goes through Pasuk by Pasuk and gives you every Medrash, every Chazal, every, everything, so that you're reading the Pasuk, but through the eyes of Torah Shabal Peh. It's a magnificent, magnificent work. And he did it without the Barilan Sidiram and without computers and without... He did it unbelievably what he achieved. In his introduction, and I want to tell you this as background to what I'm about to tell you about that fifth language of Geula, the Hevesi. In his introduction to Sefer Shmos, in his introduction to the Torah Shlema of Sefer Shmos, he writes the following. This uh, volume of Shmos, in which is recorded the suffering and the oppression of the Jewish people when they first entered as a people upon the stage of world history. By the way, when did he publish this? He completed his introduction to Sefer Shmos to Shmos on the third day of the third month, which is the third of Sivan, May 25th, 1944, is when he published Sefer Shmos. And he writes the following. I'll read it to you for the sake of time in the English. It is the fate of this present edition to be published during days of blood and suffering when the children of Israel are again groaning under their fearful oppression. But we would be unfaithful to reality were we to equate our torment in these days with the anguish that was experienced by the children of Israel in Egypt. The primal serpent has grown and expanded over the last 3,000 years. In the service of Amalek and his allies stand all the tools of technology to eradicate, annihilate, and destroy. With furious anger and without ever being sated, the savage, the unclean, the wicked have laid siege to our people in Europe, severing them from the source of life, women together with men, the old with the very young. For those of us who by miraculous means have been saved from the torrent of European blood that has been poured upon the entire world and upon our people sevenfold, in us has been established, they became sick because of the children of Israel, such that it made their lives bitter. An echo of the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, the lover of Israel, reaches our hearts. Why have you made things so bad for your people? Lama hareosa la'am hazeh. And our ears are attuned to the plaintive cry of David. Why do you stand from afar? We do not understand the ways of providence. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways mine. But we do hope that in our day, we will also be established Hashem's response to Moshe Rabbeinu. And the world will merit to see quickly and soon our God's salvation. But he who's, who said to his world, die, enough, say to our sorrows, enough. May wickedness dissipate like smoke, and may the one who dwells in the heavens raise up the horn of his people. May we rejoice in the blossoming of our holy Torah and the joy of our land rebuilt in holiness when Hashem returns the captivity of Zion. That is Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher's introduction to his Sefer, his commentary on Sefer Shmos, May 1944. I never thought this way, but could you imagine in those years, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, studying Sefer Shmos with the Holocaust raging? Seeing it not through the eyes of being redeemed and free, and we're in America, the land of freedom, we're going to Israel and learning in your year in Israel or over Sukkot or spending Pesach at the Kinar and reading all the Haggadah and Shmos and oh, it's wonderful and we live it and it's very easy to relive it. It's easy to relive it and it's easy to, to, to play it out in the Kinar in Israel on Pesach or some exotic hotel or in Boca Raton for Pesach. But could you imagine the 19, early 1940s 
Listen to his language. It's unbelievably powerful. And against that backdrop, now understand this comment. Because Menachem and the Kasher published a Sefer. This is one of the Sefarim. I actually got it as a gift for my Bar Mitzvah. It gathered an enormous amount of dust. And then I saw it among my Haggadahs a couple years ago. I was like, that's awesome. I have Haggadah Shlema. So never give up. When you give that Bar Mitzvah present and you don't think the kid will ever enjoy it, it'll gather dust for a few years, but someday hopefully they'll realize it's sitting on their shelf or in their, uh, in their iPad. Anyway, so the, the Haggadah Shlema, Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher has his Haggadah Shlema. And now he writes and publishes the Haggadah Shlema. He calls it the Haggadah of Eretz Yisrael. Because it's not 1944 anymore. There's been an establishment of the state where Menachem and Akasher has moved to Israel and he's living in Israel, publishing Torah, thriving in a Jewish state of Israel. And there he says the following. Again, I'm not going to read it. I have the original Hebrew here from the Haggadah Shlema. But for the sake of time, I'll read it to you in the English. I'll read the first sentence in Hebrew. Hine bezmanenu anu shezachinu liros chaste Hashem yizbarach v'yishuoso alav ba'kamas medinas Yisrael. This is a Talmud of the Sachet Shavu Rebbe, the Avni Nezer, who then became a chassid of the Gera Rebbe, who's living in Yerushalayim, who looks like and identifies with the Haredi community, but writes, in our time, that we've merited to see the incredible kindness of the Almighty with the establishment of Medinat Yisrael, Shehi Aschalta de Geula, which is the beginning of redemption, V'yeshua Migolas Edom V'kiyom Avtachas V'hevesi Eschem Al-Aretz, this is the fulfillment of the fifth word, the fifth promise. This is it. We're living it, writes Rav Kasher. So, just in 1944, his introduction to Shmosi says, the world's fallen apart around us. This is a million times worse than, say, for Shmos, because now the world's using technology to destroy us in ways they never could. And now it's a few years later, and he's writing, we have merited to live through the fifth language of Gula. Let me read to you the rest of what he says in the English. In our own time, we've been privileged to behold the mercies of God, the salvation, the establishment of the state of Israel, which is the redemption, the salvation from the exile of Edom. As it is written, I'll bring you to the land. It is fitting and proper, he writes, that we observe this pious act, the drinking of the fifth cup as a form of thanksgiving. Just as we've been privileged to see the first realization of, I shall bring them, we saw Velakarti, so may we be worthy of witnessing the perfect and complete redemption. We achieve the Hevesi, we achieve the five, now let Mashiach come. So Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher turns to the chief rabbinate of Israel in his Agadah and he begs them to please establish, to change the practice that in our day we don't have a Kos Eliyahu sitting in the middle of the table, but that we drink the Kos Eliyahu. He asked the chief rabbinate to paskin for the Jewish people that in in response to the miracle of the founding of the state of Israel and the freedom we've achieved, in contrast to the suffering immediately before it, that we now have a practice of not just pouring a cup and look at it longingly for when that fifth word will be fulfilled, but that now we begin to drink it. As you know and probably observe, his suggestion was not accepted. It was not accepted widely, but it's an amazing thing to read this parsha. The four Lashonos, the fifth, the Hevesi, to realize we are meriting to live through it. The Hevesi is happening all around us with the difficulties and with the third intifada and with the terror, none of which I mean to minimize in the least. But with all of that, we are living the blessed time of the Hevesi, so much so that Rav Kasher suggested that we observe it by actually drinking not four cups of wine, you'd really stumble to your bed after the Seder, but five cups of wine.
Okay, the Torah goes on, the parsha goes on. I want to get to our section that uh, Hashem is ready to send Moshe. Moshe says, no way, they're never going to listen to me. They're an exhausted people. And then we now have this bizarre interruption. God recruits Moshe and Aaron, you'll be my agents. No problem, I'm coming with you. Don't worry, we're going to do this together. And he's ready to send them. And all of a sudden we have, our story is interrupted, our program gets interrupted by a list of the lineage of Moshe and Aaron. And by the way, if you want to know where they come from, here is a long list. Elo Rashi Beis Avosam, Bnei Ruvein, Bechor Yisrael, and so on and so forth, ending with Moshe and Aaron. These on page 322. These are the ones who will speak to Paro. It's time to take them out. Who Moshe Aaron? If you're curious where they came from, here's their lineage and everyone else's lineage. As if we don't know their lineage. Where have you been hiding? Under what rock have you been? If you don't know who Moshe and Aaron are by now. Last week's Pasha, we learned about Moshe's background and his brother Aaron. The Torah has to interrupt to give us. 31, 30 verses here? Less than 30. 15 verses here? Torah is the most valuable real estate in the world. We don't waste space. 15 psukim to tell me who Moshe Aaron. I don't know who they are. Why in the world is the Torah reintroducing me to them? Rav Hirsch has a phenomenal insight. Says Rav Hirsch, you know why the Torah is taking the time to reintroduce them? Moshe and Aaron are about to embark finally on this journey is going to begin of being the saviors of the Jewish people. And it's important for us to know that in our religion, our saviors are not the result of immaculate conception. But our saviors have parents and grandparents, and they have a background. And says Rav Hirsch, that's why the Torah is interrupting. To tell us that our greatest leaders and the conduits of our freedom and salvation didn't come from nowhere. They are not, God forbid, the Son of God. They have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and that's why their lineage is delineated right here. The Ran in his Drushos has another similar interesting observation. The Ran in his Drushos, Drushos Aran, writes, You know why Moshe had a speech impediment? Last week's Pasha, God says, Moshe, come, you're the man. And Moshe says, Not so fast, I don't speak very well. I'm not an orator, I don't speak well. How am I going to do it? And again in our Pasha, every time God tugging, Moshe's pulling, God sending go, and Moshe saying no, I can't. I have a speech impediment. I don't speak well. Why did God make the greatest leader of our people in perpetuity forever, our Rabbeinu, have a speech impediment? Right? To us, aren't the most effective leaders, Jewish and non-Jewish, the best rab, most inspiring rabbis, they're good speakers. So Moshe, who is Rabbeinu, who becomes the paradigmatic leader, has a speech impediment? So the Rabbi Rabbeinu Nisim and his Drushos gives an incredibly important answer. He says Moshe actually not only had a speech impediment, he lacked charisma. And it was critically important that the leader of our people who would free us and then give us the Torah had to lack charisma. And do you know why he had to lack charisma? Because if he had charisma, then one might look back and say, God's not real, and the Torah's not real, this whole thing is a farce. Some charismatic guy who was a good speaker pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. And by the way, in our time, we've seen tragedies of rabbis, one of which was written about in the New York Times last week, may or may not have served as a rabbi at Boca Raton Synagogue for under a year, possibly, before he changed his name. I won't say who it is. But a whole profile was written about him and the abuse in his history and the challenges, and it's a shocking thing. Here's an individual who has been 
abusive and has been inappropriate, has had countless accusations that have changed chat that have chased him across continents, and this expose written about him was all about the fact that he's rising yet again and Whole Foods is consulting with him as a spiritual guru and the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus is writing a book with him and here you have a person with a riddled past. And what is the article all about? That people excuse his inappropriate behavior because he has charisma, he's spiritual, he's a guru, he, he, he takes them into a trance, he lifts them. And we've had those individuals in our past who we can't reconcile their behavior with their charisma, so we excuse their behavior and we bow and defer to their charisma. So says the Ran, says the Ran, the internet's catching up with this person, because as Justice Brandeis said, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant, so the internet is catching up with this person, they won't be able, their charisma will not survive this. But says the Ran, Moshe didn't have charisma and he didn't speak well. So nobody could look back and say, yeah, the Torah is manufactured, it's fake, it's artificial, it's counterfeit. This charismatic, incredible speaker got up there and pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. So we know about Moshe that he had parents. He's the son of man, not of God. We know that he had a speech impediment. He was imperfect. And yet, he was able to accomplish what he did. That's Rabbeinu. That's our most authentic, our most authentic leader. The redemption begins, Hashem sends Paro. We begin with the Makos, plagues and frogs and lice. And you've all been to a couple of Pesach Sedarim, so you know the way the rest of this goes. Parshas Vaera carries us through the first seven plagues. Okay, let's delve into the Pesukim. I apologize, our introduction was so long that I had to say all that. Okay. I actually made a note last year what we got up to, so that we would continue right from where we left off last year. So we are on Perak Zayin Pasuches. Chapter 7, verse 8, which appears on page 324-325 of the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. 324-325, Perak Zion, Pasuk Ches. We are right at the part where the redemption begins. God is sending Moshe and Aaron to go see Paro. We know that Moshe that day is 80, Aaron is 83 years old. Right? It's, a, it's interesting. It's a, also another lesson, by the way lest you think that you are that age or younger and that you're retired. Moshe and Aaron, their biggest impact, their greatest years, Moshe and Aaron just got started at 80 and 83. So ask yourselves, what are you getting started with in the next chapter of your life? What do you have yet to accomplish? How can you be a leader? Moshe and Aaron's leadership only began at 80 and 83. A lot to learn from that. God says to Moshe and Aaron, saying... Every time that word Lemor appears, we can ask the question, isn't it redundant? Why Le- God said to Moshe and Aaron, saying? What does that mean? God said, saying. That is what we call biblical Hebrew. If you tried to say that to someone today, they would not know what you're talking about. I am saying to you, saying. So-and-so said to so-and-so, saying. What does that mean? Vayomer and Lemor. The Orachayim HaKadosh addresses this. It says the Orachayim on Pasuk Ches, the reason that it says Lemor is God was telling Moshe and Aaron when you go confront Paro and tell him this is what's going to happen you can do it in my name Lemor I'm saying to you what I'm saying with permission for you to repeat it because if God did not explicitly give permission, it would be forbidden to repeat it. Ka'omram, as we have a Gemara, Yuma, Daftalad, 
Shehu bebal tomar. Ad sheyomar lo lemor. A very important halacha is learned out from lemor. The Yorachayim mentions this all over Chumash. And we've mentioned it before. What's the default? If someone tells me some good juicy piece of information, is the default that that's public unless they say to me, don't repeat it? Or is the default that it's private unless they say to me, feel free to tell anyone you want? What's the default? It's a very important question. It's very halacha lemaisa. Almost every moment of every day. Especially with email and the internet. What's the default when you get an email? Can you forward it unless they said, keep it between us? Or must you keep the email confidential unless they say, feel free to forward this to anyone? What's the default? So the Gemara in Yuman Dalit says, we have a prohibition called Bautomar, which means you're not allowed to say something, repeat something, unless you have explicit permission. The default is it's confidential and private unless you're told you can share it. It's not the Jewish way, but it should be. That's the halachic. That's the halachic. You know what the Jewish definition of a secret is? Something you tell people one by one. That's the Jewish definition of a secret. So the Orachayim says there's a prohibition about Omar. You're not allowed to repeat something unless you have permission. So every time God speaks to Moshe, Moshe doesn't know. Is God confiding in him? Or does God want him to share this as the teacher of the Jewish people? So whenever it says Lemor, it's God giving license. It's God giving explicit permission to Moshe to repeat it. So Lemor means Moshe and Aaron are allowed to and should repeat this message to Paro. That's number one. Number two, the Archaim says, Od did God actually say this to Moshe and Aaron? It says, Vayom Rashem al Moshe v'yel Aaron lemor. So do you read that as, Vayom Rashem al Moshe v'yel Aaron, comma, lemor? Or Vayom Rashem al Moshe, comma, v'yel Aaron lemor? So the Yorachayim says, read it the second way. It's not that God spoke to Moshe and Aaron saying, it's God spoke to Moshe. Say it to Aaron. So Aaron did not receive directly from God. God said to Moshe, and Moshe understood that he had instructions to share it with his brother Aaron as well. So it's Vayom Hashem Moshe Kama, V'yal Aaron Lemor, and to Aaron say what I'm about to tell you. Baruch Atah Adonai, Elohim Malach HaOlam, Amen. Ki Daber Aleichem Paro Lemor, when Paro speaks to you and he says, Give us some mofes. Who are you clowns? Give me a break. By the way, we don't often look at it this way either, but I can imagine it's a little bit awkward. Because Paro didn't say, Who are you clowns? He says, What happened to the little boy I raised? I fed, I gave shelter to, who grew up in this palace, my prince. Now you're standing here and you're confrontational. Now you're standing here as a um, adversary? Who are you? So he says, how do I know this is your mission? You claim to represent this God? Miasha, who's this God? In whose name you've come to redeem this people who are responsible for driving my economy that I'm not really prepared to give them up. So he says, you know, prove it to me. Tenula chemo face. So God says to Moshe, when Paro will tell you, prove it to me and give me a proof. So here's what you're going to do. 
You're going to tell your brother, Kachas Matcha, take your staff, Vashlich Lefne Paro, Yehila Sanin, and throw it down in front of Paro, and it will become a, what's a Sanin? Huh? Everyone's saying it's a serpent or a snake. Okay, maybe it is. We'll see in a moment. So indeed, this is exactly what happened. Moshe and Aaron come to Paro. They did what they were told. Aaron threw a staff down and it turned into a sanin. Paro says, that's a nice trick. It's impressive. I could do it too. And he calls his sorcerers and witchcraft and whatever, magicians. And they too, these necromancers, did so with their incantations. They too worked their magic and they too were able to achieve it. So each threw down their staff and they became saninim too. But what happened next? Our own staff swallowed up the staves of the others. Like a stubborn little kid goes, hmm. and he doesn't care. He's unimpressed. His heart, heart, heart hardens, and he does not listen, just as Hashem had spoken, as Hashem had predicted. So what's going on over here? We've got a lot of questions to address. A lot of questions to address. Why does Paro ask for a moface? If you recall, by the way, is it so terrible Paro asked for this? Here's a God he doesn't know. People representing a God he's never met. And they say, God told us to do this. Please let two to three million people go. Let your labor force, who are responsible for your thriving economy and giving you all the power in the world, um, we have a message from God. He says to let them go. Do you blame Paro for saying, how do I know you have any credibility? (laughs) Prove it. Who are you? Where are your credentials? Who else did that? Who else did God introduce himself to that person and they said, not so sure, can you show me a little something? Show me a little something. Who else? Anybody? Moshe. Yeah. Moshe. Only there, what's it called? An os. And over here, it's called a moface. So why is it different? There it's an os, and here it's a moface. And what's a sanin? There, what does the matet turn into? A? A nachash. And here it turns into a? Tanin, a sanin. What's the difference? Question number two. So let's go through. Let's look a little bit. Rashi, moface. Paro says, give me a sign so I know that you're really empowered on this mission. Where are your credentials? How do I know you are who you say you are and you've come to do what you say you've come, you've come to do? The Svarno goes even further. Rabavadja Svarno on Pasuk Tess. Writes the Svarno, Tnu lanu mofes. Hamofes hu lahoros al godel hamashaleach v'sheroi l'shmoa b'kolo. What's the purpose of a moface? The purpose of a wonder is to establish the authenticity of not the person who's in front of you, but the mishaleach. You have a shliach and a mishaleach. The mishaleach is the one who sends the person on the mission, and the shliach is the agent who's on the mission. 
So says the Sforno, the purpose of a Mophase is to establish the authenticity of the Mishaleach. You're standing in front of me, I see you, I know you're here. But you claim to represent an invisible being I never met. How do I know he's real? And why should I listen to his voice? So that's the difference is this one. A mo-face is, do a wonder. Suspend the rules of nature. How do I know there's really a God? The Mishaleach. Whereas the os, a sign, is, do you have a contract? Do you have something that shows that you're the shliach? Power of attorney. An os is a power of attorney, and a mo-face is a wonder. Suspending the rules of nature. So Moshe had to provide the Jewish people an os. Why did they need an os? Because they didn't doubt God's existence. They had a tradition about God's existence. What was their question? Who are you? How do we know you're here to say what you claim you're here to do? We don't know that you have the credentials you claim to have. So the Jewish people needed an os. They needed evidence that Moshe and Aaron were God's power of attorney. But Paro, who is suspicious or doubts the existence of God or His supreme divine power, he needs something more than a sign, a contract. He needs an os. Uh, he needs a moface, rather. He needs a wonder. Enough that will indicate to him, compellingly, why he has to listen to God's voice. Okay, so that's the Sfarno. Why is the, what's the difference between an Os and a Mophase? The Jewish people needed an Os, that corresponds with the Shliach, and Paro needed a Mophase, that corresponds with the Mishaleach. Why here is it a Tanin, whereas earlier it is a Nachash, says the Kliyakar. The Kliyakar addresses this question. Pasuk Tess. You all said, immediately when I said, what's a tanin? You said, a serpent or a snake. But the Kliyakar says, we have a tradition that a tanin is a big fish. In the story of creation, we know that God creates the creatures among them are the Taninim, and Rashi there says, what is that? It is a fish. Or alternatively, some say it is a, a uh, snake, and that's what we have here. So says the Kliyakar, I want to suggest a reason for the change. Why with the people is it called a Nachash? And why here with Paro is it called a Tanin? A tanin is a bigger, more dangerous, more lethal snake. That the poison of a tanin is more lethal and dangerous than a regular snake. And what's the, sim, what's the symbolism here? What's the metaphor, says the Kliyakar? That Moshe and Aaron are going to achieve the ten plagues with their mouth. Don't think they brought it about through some science or nature. They smacked it. Don't think that they had certain illusions or, or there were um, smoke and mirrors, Hollywood studios. It was all achieved with their command, with their mouth. 
just like the snake powers in its mouth it bites and it gives poison so to Moshe and Aaron it's with their mouth they achieve these plagues not with the staff but with their command so the symbolism of the snake is the power of the snake is in its mouth and the power of Moshe and Aaron is in their mouths Moshe is a shepherd with his staff, the same way a, sheep, a, a shepherd of sheep. And he's also the ruler over Paro. So Kliyakar talks about why specifically Moshe is told when Moshe throws it down, he holds it by the tail and not the mouth, why it's a nachash, because Moshe has greater rule and greater power than Aaron. He writes, continues, So you know Moshe has this power. Where do you see that Aaron has his own independent power of Moshe? That Aaron has his own power and it's even greater than the capacity of rule for Moshe. And the Kuyakar goes on and on. So he says that the two tests are with two different types of serpents to show Paro that Moshe is not the only one who has this power, but Aaron has his own independent power here as well. There's a long Kuyakar, he goes on and on, but I want to, I want to go weiter. I want to go further. Okay. should say Mofsin. Tenulachem Mofes. Well, I should say Mofsin if they're both throwing it down, you're saying? Swallowed the other ones. Right. Good. Okay, that's a good point. But that wasn't necessarily intended at first. When he asked for a Mofes in the singular, you throw your staff down. When he can reproduce that, then the second miracle came of the staff swallowing up the other staffs. By the way, when, this, when they reproduced it, when Paro successfully turns to his Chachamim, Mechashvim, Chartumim, Mitzrayim, and they can reproduce the staff turning into a snake, did their staffs actually also turn into snakes? Or did they just look like it? Is there sorcery? Is there a power of witchcraft and sorcery in the world? This is a big machlokas between the Ramban and the Rambam. I once had to do a paper in college on this subject. About the Ramban and the Rambam, I did it not having to do with sorcery, but having to do with um, astrology. Do we believe in it or not? Do we believe in its power or not? So the Ramban says, there is a force in the world 
There is a power in the world called astrology or witchcraft or necromancy. There is a power in the world that says that Ramban, we are instructed, don't use that power. Don't subscribe to that power. Don't consult that power. That's not for us. We exclusively rely on the Ribbonu Shalom. Behold, be complete, be one with Hashem. Don't tap into the energy which exists in reality, but it's not for us. That's the Ramban. So is astrology rule true? Yes. Depending on what constellation you're born under, it has an impact on your personality or who you are. There is some indications out there. There is truth to it, says the Ramban. By the way, lest you think, well, of course, the Ramban is a Kabbalist and the Rambam is a doctor. Anyone know what the Ramban did for a living? Nachmanides was also a doctor. The Ramban's mother was also proud. He was also a doctor. So the Ramban is also a man of science. And despite being a man of science, I shouldn't say despite, with being a man of science, the Ramban subscribes to the power or the authenticity of astrology and of witchcraft. There is an ability to manipulate the world using these energies. He says it's true, it exists, but it's niche for us. It's not for us. We're Jews. The Rambam says, it's all hocus pocus garbage. It's not true. It's counterfeit. It's fake. It's fake. The Rambam is more along the lines of the way we know magic to be today. I hope I'm not ruining it for anyone, but there's no such thing as magic. So-called magicians are not performing magic. It's all sleight of hand. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all... It's illusion. They're using the power of illusion. So says the Rambam, it's all the power of illusion. So you have this machlokas right here as well. Some say that when Paro calls the Khartoumi Mitzrayim, and they are able to recreate this, they reproduce this. Some say, yeah, like the Ramban, they're, they're tapping into a power in the world. They were able to reproduce it, but in a limited fashion. They can only turn their staff into a snake, but then their snakes got swallowed by arms. Whereas the Rambam would say, nah, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Um, look, look at the Ibn Ezra, for example, talks about this. Says the Ibn Ezra, Lamechashvim mishanim davar atoldos lamare ha'ayin. It's an illusion. They're able to change something in its appearance to give you the impression of something else. Chartumim and mayudum soda toldos. Even Ezra is not sure where the word Khatumim comes from. But how exactly was this working? Were they actually changing it? Or were they just making an illusion that it was changed? Some Ramban, Rambam, and others here as well. So what happens? Aaron snake swallows the others, and Paro is not buying it. Why is Aaron's staff swallow the others? Says Rashi. Aaron goes back to being a staff, and now as a staff, swallows their staffs. Not as a snake swallowing snakes. I guess it's less miraculous for one snake to swallow other snakes. Could happen. But it's more, it's more the staff swallowing their staffs. And that, what was the point? Look at the Balaturim, Pasuk Tess. I'm sorry, look at these Sforno, Pasuk Yudbez. God alone makes an animated being. You know, we can mix all kinds of ingredients too. So what it means to say is, when, when Aaron threw his staff on the ground and it turned into a snake, 
Was it just like a toy snake, which is inanimate? Or was it alive and moving and slithering? And So Aaron's snake was slithering. When the sorcerers reproduced it, all they could reproduce is they threw the staff on the ground and through the power of illusion, now you can see how this might have been magic. Now what was just a plain wood staff had two eyes and a mouth and scales of a snake and it looked like a snake. It wasn't moving, it wasn't alive, it didn't have a heartbeat, but it looked like a snake, right? Which is power of illusion, magic. You throw the staff down, psh, it'll smoke and then the smoke clears and it now is decorated as a snake. Whereas in Aaron's case, he throws the staff down and it's slithering and it's, it's an actual snake. So what differentiated, where'd you prove that? When Aaron's mata swallows the other matos, says the Svarno, you see that Aaron's mata is a ruach unashama. It's alive, it's animated. It's not an inanimate object, it's an animate object. Whereas Paro's magicians and sorcerers couldn't figure out that trick. They could throw the staff down and poof, and a little bit of smoke, and when it clears, it looks like a snake, but they couldn't make it come alive. Only Aaron's could come alive, and that was compelling evidence, compelling proof that Moshe and Aaron really represent Hashem, whereas the sorcerers and, and magicians were just performing the power of the power of illusion. And yet, despite that feat, Paro. Paro's not buying it. Which part of it did Paro not buy? So the Ibn Ezra says, Vayechazak, who hardened Paro's heart here? It's an interesting insight of the Ibn Ezra. Previously we know Hashem hardened Paro's heart. Right? A couple of psukim earlier it says, Go speak to Paron, Paro, and you should know, Vani Aksha slave Paro. I'm going to harden Paro's heart. Aksha, like an action, stubborn. I'm going to harden Paro's heart. Ani Aksha slave Paro. But here it doesn't say, God hardened Paro's heart. It just says, His heart became hardened. Who did it? So the Ibn Ezra says, He didn't need God. It's not that Paro said, Well, that's pretty impressive. Okay, I'm in. They can go. And God came in and intervened and said, No, I must harden his heart. Paro himself didn't buy it. And why Mayatzmo? Why did Paro himself not buy it? Because what his magicians did was good enough. It was close enough to what Aaron did. So cognitive dissonance. Like he chose not to pay attention to the fact that Aaron's was alive and animated and swallowed his. He just paid attention that his, his magicians, what they did was good enough. And it was good enough for him to have a hardened heart and not to be willing to give in. That's the comment of the Ibn Ezra. The Rashpam, Pasuk Yigimu, says, Lomar kigam Aaron it's not that Paro's heart became hardened because he thought his magicians did good enough. It's the opposite. His heart became hardened because he said, yeah, Aaron's just a magician too. So he's a better magician than my magicians? Okay, he's a better magician than my magicians. But he's also just a magician in the end of the day. So in this case, unlike in other cases that are about to happen when the plagues actually come themselves, where Hashem intervenes and hardens heart, here it's not Hashem hardening the heart. Paro on his own has a hardened heart, which I think many of us can relate to. We sometimes are unconvinced by things that we should be convinced by because we come in with a preconceived notion. We don't want to be convinced by it. So we see an excuse. We say, yeah, Aaron's just a better magician. But really he's a magician too. Or we say, my magician... 
It's good enough. They were able to recreate enough of it that I don't have to believe it. That if we don't want to believe something, we harden our own hearts to be able to not believe it by making excuses based on the circumstances that are around us. I think we have to stop here. We didn't even, I wanted to get to the first plague. Maybe next year what we'll begin with, or maybe even next week. Next year. You're all coming back, right? Next year we'll begin with is uh, why did Hashem harden Paras heart? What happened to free will, which is the basis of humanity? Okay, please stay for Rabbi Moskowitz's amazing shear on Sefer Daniel.